Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and I am sitting here in Blister HQ with Luke Coppa. And you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. So, yeah, as mentioned, back here with Luke Coppa, it had been, it kind of felt like it had just been too long. I don't know how long it's been, but I was like, we need to do this again. Probably like two weeks, I think. <laughs> um, Luke just got back from a ski tour. We are going to record this episode, and then I am going to go out on a ski tour. And uh, so that is our that is our best life currently for us. Um, let's see. Before we get going here, one thing I want to say, uh, the Blister membership. We should talk about that for just a second. Many of you know about the Blister membership. Some of you do not. Many of you are already Blister members, and we we love our Blister members. Thank you for the support. Um, but let's see. Uh, when you have gear questions, for those who don't know, become a Blister member. You can send us an email. We will get you sorted out. That's kind of what we do around here. If you're also one of those people who always leave the comments that are like, hey, where's the review on whatever the hell? Well, just become a Blister member and then you can send us an email and we will reply with what we know about that product so far and the like. And so that's a more productive thing to do than just leave comments about where's the full review. So that's a pro tip. You're welcome for that. Luke, what else should I say about the Blister membership? Um, if you are a Blister member, there's actually a spot on our website under become a Blister member. It says Blister member clubhouse. And if you're looking to ask a gear question or you want info on all the discounts you get, or just want all the exclusive flash reviews and deep dives in one spot, that single page has all that info. Um, it's something we added in the last year that I think has made it a lot easier, but some people might not know that. So, um, yeah, that's the place to go if you're already a member. So say it again, where should people go on the navigation bar? There's a little thing that says become a blister member. If you click that, it drops down and it says blister member clubhouse. And that's where you go. Excellent. And uh, we've also just added a thing where for the month of May, every new Blister member, Luke will come to your house, cook you a pasta dinner. And um, I think we're going to not get any memberships because <laughs> these people have listened to my diet <laughs> for the last few months. <laughs> okay. Well, we might not do that, but it's, it's a thought we could, we could issue a new level. There's like, you know, we have our regular blister membership then like the premier level. This could be either the ultra premier or the like garbage membership. I don't know which we'll have to think through which, but um, who knows? Maybe someday Luke will show up at your house and cook his, cook his famous pasta dinner you've been cooking a lot of pasta lately uh yeah i feel like it's it's time to move on to some other dish that i eat exclusively for like the next three months so i have a lot of a lot of figuring out to it's a big decision because <laughs> i'm going to be committed for a while yeah all right um well, anyway that's the blister membership all right today we are here to basically catch up on some of the AT gear that Luke has been spending time on. You 
guys recently got to hear me talk to Sebastian Steinbach about a number of the AT boots that I have been spending time in. So we'll see how much I talk during this episode. Who knows? Uh, So we're going to cover some of the stuff that Luke has been doing, and then we are going to get to some of your questions. And you guys asked some good ones this week. So um, well done. But Luke, we'll start with you. What are we talking about on the AT gear front? Uh, I'll start off with basically the only boot I've been using recently. It's a new boot for 2122 from Fisher called the Trans Alp Pro. Um, they had previously had a line of boots called the Trans Alp. They were extremely different than this new series. And essentially, the Trans Alp is fitting between the Ranger series, which is more of like a 50 50 crossover boot, and the Traverse boots, which are very, very light, tons of range of motion, but uh, not particularly downhill oriented. So the Trans Alp is stiffer and more downhill oriented than the Traverse, but with better range of motion than the Ranger. And honestly, after using it, I would say the majority of boots that ski as well as it does. And it's been really interesting because uh, in in terms of weight, it comes in just over our pair of a 26.5 is coming in just over 1300 grams, which is about the same weight as a Technica zero G tour pro, um, which is definitely an outlier in the stiffer, more downhill oriented touring category. But the big difference is, while the Transalp is definitely not as stiff as a zero G, it does walk a lot better. It's not, it's obviously not drastically lighter, but in terms of range of motion, it's the best walking boot I've used that skis that well. Um, they don't list a flex number for it. Um, but so far in terms of forward flex, I'd call it something around a 115 or a 120. Um, and the nice thing is it's not, uh, like it, it's a carbon cuffed boot, but it's not, it doesn't have that kind of old school carbon feel where it's just a wall. Like it is very progressive and basically it's let me ski just about how I want to when I'm touring. I ski a lot, uh, less aggressively when I'm, uh, touring. Cause one, I just walked, spent a lot of time walking uphill to get every single turn and two, I'm like, definitely don't want to get hurt or anything like that. And I'm usually on lighter, less downhill oriented gear. So overall, I've been super psyched on it. The fit is a little odd. It is on the shorter side, which I wear a 26.5 in every boot I've ever tried. And I think the Scott Cosmos was the only boot that was ever short. And the Trans Alp is definitely on the shorter side. Um, it hasn't proven to be an issue, but I've only, I think the longest day I've done in it was like seven hours of skiing or something like that. So not super long, Um, but it works okay with my weird feet. The ankle is relatively secure on my fairly low volume ankle and I haven't had much midfoot pain on my wide midfoot. So it checks a lot of boxes so far and yeah, I'm curious to see what other people think, but for my style of touring, it's worked really well. I'd say my, main complaints are the fit and then the lateral and rearward support might not be great. I'm not someone who normally notices a boot being too soft laterally. Usually I'm just like, it's fine, but I think that might be one of the things I'm noticing, um, especially in like weird conditions, doing hop turns and stuff, or like the other day when I was just going to switch, it felt really weird. 
Um, so it's just kind of like random instances where it just doesn't feel as solid as I'd expect. But in terms of forward flex, I love the forward flex pattern and I'm curious to keep skiing it a little bit more. But I think for people who want a boot that skis better than a Traverse or a, a TLT 8 or an Atomic Backland, but they want something that walks a lot more efficiently than a zero g or a hawks xtd or a mistrali it seems like a pretty compelling option so far Hmm. one of the things i just want to clarify when you say that the boot feels a little shorter one of the things we've seen is that some companies have been going with a shorter bsl or boot sole length and just to clarify for people that's not what luke's talking about here so like atomic for example has started offering touring boots with a relatively short boot sole length, but it doesn't mean that the toe box itself feels short. Yeah. I mean, the, the Transal Pro has, has both. It's a, in a 26.5, it's a 294 millimeter boot sole length. And, and to say like a lot of 26.5 touring boots that we ski are like a 303. Yeah, BSL. I think I want to say the zero G is like 297. So it's not super far off. But yeah, I'm talking about the interior yeah. fit of the boot feels short. Um, but yeah, overall, I've been really psyched on it. And I'll probably just keep using it for the rest of the summer. The thing that I've been interested in is I've been trying to get you to ski some other AT boots and you just keep going back to the trans out. Yeah, well, I doubt one, I doubt they'll fit. And to, yeah, I mean, I, I skied like, I skied a couple days of the, in the Cochise boot. And I mean, my previous boot was the Atomic Hawks Prime XTD 130. Um, but I have, I'm not very confident I'd fit in like the Lang XT3 Tour Pro or whatever other boots we How have. How did the Cochise fit you? Not great. Huh. <laughs> I wasn't, wasn't very comfortable. Um, yeah, like most boots. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm not you. Yeah, most people are. Yeah. Um, where are we going next? Uh, so now on to some skis. Uh, the ski that I was just on with that Transalp boot is the DPS Pagoda Tour 100 RP. Um, so the interesting thing here is that during the the lift access season, I was skiing a few skis from DPS, including the Pagoda Piste 90 RP and the, the standard Pagoda 100 RP. And this Pagoda tour version is essentially same shape, rocker profile, everything, just a lighter construction. Um, and while I got along with the other uh, RP shapes in the resort, um, I think that design works better as a touring ski because um, it's got a pretty tight radius, a lot of tip and tail taper and tip and tail rocker for a ski that width, and is generally just well suited to making um, lots of turns and slashing easily and just being an easy ski to get along with. And like I said, touring, I'm not skiing as fast or aggressively. And on the stuff I've been doing, like just short, short laps during the week, it's been great. Like some of the skis I get on and I feel like it takes me half the run to get used to them. And this Pagoda Tour 100 RP was just really easy to get along with. It is surprisingly what I'd call like surfy in soft snow. Um, like I was just out, the conditions today were a little odd. It had, 
it had snowed a, a few inches yesterday, I think, or the day before. And so up top it was cream cheesy, but I would say it was like, it was like the whipped cream cheese, like kind of low density for cream cheese. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyways, it was really good in that and just like really like easy to break the tails free and slide it sideways. Um, but then I've skied it on pretty just smooth, firm snow and it holds an edge just fine and, and carves quite well. So Overall, I've I've liked that ski a lot better than I expected. My one complaint is probably that it has a recommended mount point of I think like minus twelve from True Center. So I had the guys at the Alpineer mounted at like plus two centimeters, which is still quite far back. But overall, it, it works at that mount point and it gives you a little bit more ski to push into when you want to go fast. So yeah, I liked it. I feel like you just gave us your new wrapper name. Uh, what's that? Cream cheesy. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'll be rapping anytime soon. Cream cheesy. I Plain. mean, that would work for like someone who's from Wisconsin. <laughs> Cream cheesy. There's probably someone out there who already has that name. If you search SoundCloud, I bet they're on there. I just took a video of that. So uh, you guys may have just seen that on social. <laughs> Uh, next ski, pretty different. Um, it's from a company called Ronin who makes skis in very small batches out of Chamonix. And I've been skiing the Ronin 108, um, in a 185 centimeter length. And my main takeaway so far is just that like, it's a ski where I can't really fault it for much of anything. Like it's not some, like usually when we're like reviewing skis from really small manufacturers, typically there's something pretty different with their design, but, and like Ronin does use this, uh, I think it's a carbon and flax, flax fiber blend. It's tough to say, uh, which we've seen on some other skis, but not too many. Um, but anyways, it's just like a, a very intuitive, reliable, pretty directional ski. It's also got a really far, far back mount point of like minus 11 and a half, I think. Um, but pretty moderate weight, about 1,640 grams for our pair of the 185. Nice suspension, in my opinion, for a ski of that weight. Um, and I think because it's got a pretty strong flex pattern, not a wild amount of rocker or tip and tail taper. And that rearward mount point just lets me lean into it pretty hard. And that's one out of all the ones I've been on recently that I've found myself skiing the hardest and fastest on. Um, so yeah, I think for people who want to just a reliable directional ski, who tend to ski with that pretty traditional forward stance, it's just, yeah, something that I could see being a lot of fun on, on most days. Yeah. And I think I've spent a bit of time on that ski too. And if I were to add anything to what you've just said, it would be, I would particularly recommend it to people who know that they would rather err on the side of a little bit less tip and tail rocker mm -hmm. than more. Mm -hmm. So like I... I've agreed with you when you've talked about it's carves really well. Mm -hmm. Like if you're getting into slush or pow, like if you want to make traditional, like strong, traditionally carved turns, it does that well. I think if where I would hesitate a little bit is if you, if for somebody who skis a lot of really punchy, grabby snow or a lot of like thicker kind of mashed potatoes or 
you know, likes to get into that cream cheesy <laughs> yep. stuff. Um, that's where you might find yourself feeling a little bit stuck and maybe wanting, especially a bit more tail rocker on it. But again, know where you tend to ski and what kind of conditions you ski in. And with that caveat of mine, I agree with everything that cream cheesy has said. Yeah. And I'd say like I have skied in, in some stickier, weirder snow and the steeper it is, the more I like it. Like yeah. if you're like yeah. kind of just like on mellow terrain and you have to ski more upright, yep. um, then I definitely, yeah, want like a forefront Raven or something like that. But yep. yeah, yeah. Overall. Um, yeah. If you like a more, more traditional overall design and it'll be, uh, more appealing to you. Yep. Where to next? Uh, on a very different end of the spectrum, the Weston Summit. Um, so Weston is probably most known to most people as a snowboard and splitboard company. They've also been making skis for a few years, and they sent the Summit, which is like a 105-ish underfoot ski, depending on which length you get, um, just kind of meant to be a do-it-all backcountry touring ski. And similar similar to the DPS Pagoda Tour 100 RP, it stands out in that it's a lot of fun at more moderate speeds and moderate terrain. Uh, it's very different than the Pagoda though. Like the Weston is, has very soft tips and tails, has a lot, uh, well, I guess similar amount of tip and tail taper, pretty tapered shape, a lot of tip and tail rocker and a much more progressive mount point of around minus eight or minus seven from true center. Um, but th- what all that translates to is something that makes like kind of just like on another ski like the Ronin if I'm coming up on like a a 20 degree pitch or something like that I might just be like straight lining it to keep speed to the next spot but like the West End can carve really well at low speeds and pivots really easily and overall uh kind of reminds me of the line vision 108 um which is a pretty similar weight pretty similar design um but those two I think are are very good choices for someone who wants something that's just more playful is going to come alive at, at lower speeds and doesn't need to be skiing gnarly stuff to be fun. All right. Well, we're clipping along here. Um, I think next we're going to talk a little bit about the wonder Alpine vital 100. We published a review of that recently on the site along with an accompanying deep dive comparison article, which is really good. And if you're one of those blister members that Luke's going to be cooking a pasta dinner for, you have access to these deep dives. So become a blister member. Anyway, Luke, what else do you want to say about the Vital 100? Um, yeah. So like you just said, wrote a, wrote a lot of words about <laughs> it recently. Um, main takeaway is that one, it feels very intuitive to me because it's got a a mount point around minus six from true center, which is one that I tend to like a lot because it lets you drive it quite hard through the shovels when you want to, but at the same time lets you ski it a lot, very centered, which a lot of, um, skis in that category really won't. Um, it's also got more tip and tail rocker than a lot of skis in that category. And it's not super light. It's like 1840 grams was our pair of the 183 centimeter. Um, but yeah, I skied that a lot this spring and a bit during the winter and skied it in the resort actually during the blister summit. 
and just felt like a pretty reliable tool for a lot of things. Like it's funny, like wonder really emphasizes that like it's a, it's a tool for technical terrain where edge fold is paramount or something like that. And I did ski it in some pretty steep techie couloirs and it was great. But at the same time, like it's, I don't think it's some niche tool, like, especially if you're not skiing super, particularly super deep snow or like fresh snow and really tight trees. Like I could see it as a easily see it as a year round touring ski, but I think probably one of the other standout characteristics is just its suspension compared to, especially compared to dedicated touring skis, most of which are a lot lighter. It just feels a lot nicer and less jarring when you're skiing less ideal conditions. Yeah. And, uh, the vital 100 that we have, which is the cambered version is 1,840 grams in a 183 centimeter length. So, um, to me that still qualifies as not heavy. Um, but yeah, it's definitely not trying to win the award for lightest ski out there. Totally agree with you about the suspension you get from those extra few grams. And I am, I'm really interested in, in skiing the reverse cambered version of it. Yeah. In which case, you know, spoiler alert, how similar or different it's going to feel to one of my all-time favorite touring skis, the Forefront Raven 102. And uh, for those particularly astute listeners, you know, Matt Sturbins uh, is kind of standing behind both of those skis. You know, um, I'm, I'm going to be pretty interested. And another spoiler alert, I am actually heading out to Portland, Oregon tomorrow. And so I'm kind of going through right now what skis I'm going to be bringing out and what boots. And I'm talking with a couple friends and we might possibly end up, you know, banging out chair laps at Timberline. We may skin Mount Hood. We may do a Mount St. Helens skin. I don't really know what at all we're going to be doing yet. So I'm kind of thinking about the 50, 50 category. Do I just bring the, the new coaches boot? If we are going to be, you know, skiing some, uh, skiing off of chairlifts, um, or if we're only touring, I probably won't bring the coach coaches and, uh, we'll bring a more dedicated touring boot. But, um, the vital 100 has definitely been a ski that I've at least been thinking about. If we end up, if I, by the time I leave, if we still don't know what the, you know, what we're going to be skiing or where that would be a ski where, you know, it could fall into the, like, I don't think I'm going to be bummed. If we're going for a long tour, I would prefer to be on a lighter ski, but I could, I'm not going to be mad about being on the vital. So that's what I have to say about that. Except it has pin bindings on it and you refuse to ski them in the resort. (laughs) I know. Well, that question will come up here in a minute. Yeah. On that note, uh, the pin bindings we have on it are the Moment Voyager 14, which is essentially a ATK Free Raider 14 with a l- decreased ramp angle. Um, so the toe is a little bit higher. Anyway, uh, that's what we've been skiing on the Vital, and I'm a huge fan. Um, it's extremely similar to the ATK slash Majesty R12 we reviewed last year. 
trying to navigate the ATK binding market in the U.S. is a nightmare still because I think we're up to four brands that sell their bindings and pretty much all of them change the names when they sell them. Um, But like we, I raved about the R12 last year. I think it's an amazing binding. The Voyager slash Free Raider 14 is higher release values and probably most notably it comes standard with uh, ATK's Free Ride Spacer, which basically removes uh, the gap that's normally between your boot heel and the binding or the ski. And the goal is to try and kind of release or like just create a more solid connection between the boot heel and the ski itself and i think it does work i don't think it's some wild change but compared to pretty much any tech binding i've used that has pins at the heel um, i think it's probably one of the most secure feelings i've felt and feels a little bit less uh, jarring and harsh when you're skiing on pretty firm conditions where pin bindings tend to feel pretty crappy. Um, and it, that spacer weighs 24 grams. So in my opinion, totally worth it. Um, and it's a binding that I think I would probably end up putting on most of my touring setups. Regardless of how lightweight the ski? Yeah, unless like, I mean, I'm just not, if I have a dedicated touring setup, I'm not going to get a heavy ski. Um, I probably wouldn't get anything over 2000 grams or so, but if I was, if I somehow had a setup that was dedicated to like days where heavy conditions are safe, but there's pow and you want to jump off stuff. Yeah. I'd I'd get something else. Or if we're like building a jump or something, honestly, if I was doing that, I'd probably just grab Alpine skis and use day makers. But if I'm not planning on jumping on a whole, jumping off a whole lot of stuff, that's probably what I would use. I feel like that was the most efficient run through gear we've ever done ever in the history of gear 30. That's because I was pretty much the only one talking. Yeah. So I feel like in that respect that the people lost out majorly on the lack of you know, additional insights that I normally provide, but, uh, I'm giving us a gold star for efficiency. Um, or I guess just you, the gold star. Cool. It's time now to transition to some listener questions. And I don't know, maybe we should start and kind of stay on this topic of the pin bindings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, do you want to take us to the question I'm referring to that, where I think basically you can read the question if you like, but where someone was just asking like, all right, so there's all these pin bindings to any feel kind of better or worse. And you just talked about the Voyager binding, mm-hmm. but what, what's your, why, why don't you find that question and like read the relevant portion of it at least? And who, who sent us that question? We, we actually had two people essentially ask the same question. One was uh, Patrick and the other was Matthew Ferguson who had 10 questions. Um, but but Matthews was Hagen, Plume, Dinafit, G3, Marker, Ski Trab, similar model comparisons. Like which model is similar, most similar to which model from the other brand. Um, there are a lot of normal looking tech bindings out there. So when, why, who should look past their go-to most convenient choice. For him, it's G3. Um, and then he also asked, are you able to say which one of them skis, quote, the most like an Alpine binding? Um, so to kick things off, given that we got two questions, 
I do want to highlight that we did a very in-depth comparison with, I mean, not every binding on the market by any means. And I, that's never going to happen just because we can't do that. But there's a lightweight touring binding shootout or comparison on our website. If you go to reviews, Alpine touring bindings, you'll find it pretty easily there. And that's where we compared the, the ATK Raider 12 slash the Hagen core 12, um, the Solomon MTN pure, I think it's now called slash atomic backland tour, uh, the Dina fit TLT speed, and the marker Alpinist and the G3Z. Um, there's also, Paul Forward did a review of the Fritchi Zenic. Um, so we've got reviews of all those bindings on the site. My review of the ATK R12 is also on the site. Um, so yeah, if you haven't checked those out, please do. I think there's very valuable information in there. But we are planning on doing some more reviews. We, we've been in touch with Plume and we are reportedly getting some of those bindings shortly. Um, so I'm hoping to get those mounted up, um, in the next week or two and start spending time on those. Um, so yeah, we've got more coming down the line and I imagine, especially once we spent more time on the plume bindings that we, we would end up doing, um, an update to that lightweight, uh, touring binding comparison next year. And, oh, and Paul Forward's also been skiing the Dina fit super light 150. So there will be a review of that one as well. Okay. How would you answer this question of, are you able to say which one of them skis, quote unquote, most like an Alpine binding? As far as full pin bindings, I'm like pins at the toe and at the heel, I guess the the moment Voyager with that free ride spacer, but it's really not a big difference. Like none of them feel like an Alpine binding. Like I wouldn't say, oh, this feels like an Alpine binding. I, I get what he's getting yeah. at, like the most like one. They're all pretty far off. I'd say the Fritchie Tecton and the Marker Kingpin represent the biggest step up from all other full pin bindings in terms of power transmission and not feeling as just nasty on firm snow. And then there's the Shift Cast and Marker Duke PT, which are Alpine bindings. So Uh, wait, let's just, just to keep it clear, you said the Kingpin and the Tecton are sort of represent a step up, mm-hmm. but that's because you actually have a real heel. Yeah. They're right. still pin toe. So kind of like a pin binding, but not really. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, my take on this, and we've gotten a couple pretty snarky comments in recently where people are like, no tech inserts and tech pins are awesome. And what are you guys talking about? And it's like, I'm sorry, dear people who think that, it's fucking not true. Like if we want to be like truthful, I have never skied a tech toe that feels like an Alpine binding where you aren't using a pair of pins that are sliding or snapping into some tech inserts in your boot. That's just not a thing. And that's a fact. Now, many people out there happily ski tech toe bindings all day long. It's all day ski. That's freaking great. I'm psyched for you, but let's not get it twisted. Like these are two very different things. And I will be the first to let y'all know if, and when the day comes, which mechanically I can't even imagine where these two little pins suddenly feel 
like an alpine toe, right? I mean, that's just crazy. That's like being, which bicycle is most like a pickup truck? I'm like, what kind of category mistakes are we making here, people? Mm -hmm. And, you know, to some people listening to this, they're like, yeah, no crap. Why have you even spent 60 seconds talking about this? But I'm telling you from the comments that we get, and I still think from a lot of confused people out there who just read marketing copy, they don't understand that we are talking about two different worlds and, or let's say two different tools. And there is a time and a place where some of those tools are the right tool or the best tool for the job, 100%. But man, there's still so much confusion out there, at least from the DMs we get sent and uh, everything else. So Yeah, I think it just popped into my mind. So we just posted as a recording this uh a review of a hardtail bike from yep. uh, it's called the Marin Elroy, yeah. and in it, our bike editor David was talking about how the way that it's made. I don't know anything about steel frame constructions, but the type of steel and the way that it was constructed resulted in what he called like a better ride feel, a slightly more damp yeah. ride feel than some other hardtails. Yeah. That's how I would say like certain pin bindings yes. feel compared to other pin bindings. Yeah. But they never, a hardtail is never going to feel like a full suspension nope. bike. A pin binding is never going to feel exactly like an Alpine binding. And like you said, like, and I, I just talked about, I would use a pin binding on the vast majority of my touring setups. Yep. I love pin bindings. I don't need an Alpine binding in the back country but they're very different. Yep. Yeah. So I don't know. I think, I think frankly, people that haven't listened to as many gear 30 conversations have not actually read our stuff. They jump into one gear 30. If it sounds like I'm hating on pin bindings, I'm not, but I am going to stand here and keep like making the case that for the confused consumer out there, who has been told that, no, no, they ski just like an Alpine binding. It's just fucking wrong. Mm. So, you know, but they're good tools and I use them and I might be only taking a pin binding with me out to Portland, depending on what we end up doing. So anyway, um, I'd love, I'd love to see the day when I feel like I can stop saying this stupid caveat slash diatribe, but our comments section leads me to believe that that day has not arrived. Also, people, these are podcasts. Read our damn full reviews. Like, we are talking freely about this different equipment. Again, this kind of came in recently, too, where someone was like, the way you and Paul talked about powder skis wasn't a 7,000-word ski review. And it's like, yes, a 7,000-word written ski review is not the same as a live conversation. There's so much clarifying that needs to be done in the world. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. We live in a country where 40 people, apparently 40% of the people don't think they should get this COVID vaccine shot. So maybe I shouldn't be quite so surprised that there's some, a little bit of confusion about subtleties of touring <laughs> bindings. bindings. Yeah, they're, they're, we got bigger yeah, problems. We, yeah, yeah we could, got bigger problems worse. around here. So yeah, at least anyway. what we're arguing about is... In the grand scheme of things, just meaningless. So. Yeah. Um, well, not meaningless if you're like blowing your knee out, yeah. which a friend of ours just did on a pin binding in Alaska and now has three surgeries in front of her. And these things happen, people. And anyway, so yeah, 
shout out to our friend heal up soon we won't name names right now but uh yeah maybe that's one of the reasons why i care a lot about this topic so anyway next topic luke where are we going Uh downside of the hoji hole referring to the hoji hole on the raven uh do you feel it when skiing my answer no absolutely not i have not come up with any downsides to that system i absolutely love it you love the hoji hole yeah (laughs) cream cheesy here to tell you I Cream think they digging on the Hoji the hole. name, but yeah, I don't think that, I don't. After they named it the Hoji Hole, I don't think that's ever gonna go away. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I think it's it's set far back enough on the the rocker tail that I don't think it really touches the. I've not I've never t- noticed it touching the snow. Yeah, I mean, if anything, the only thing I would say I really like the system too. I think if you are on like a pretty steep like the steeper the skin track and the icier that steeper skin track is, you know, you do lose a bit of carpet coverage on the tail of that ski. That's about the only thing I can think of. Yeah. I think that might be more of the, the skins it comes with than I just don't think I'm ever, ever touching that part of a ski with that rocker profile. Because yeah. if, it, if it's firm, you're only using yeah. like the underfoot area. I think well, it's key, just... key phrase with that rocker profile. Yeah, yeah. 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 If it was a fully cambered ski, yeah. it wouldn't make sense to have that skin. But yeah, overall, I, I love that system. No, it's really good. I, I concur. Um, this one is a little, I guess will require some creativity on our part. In quote, very light AT ski that has best or better or least worse than the rest in terms of downhill or performance on downhill variable ice crud sastrugi avi debris generally non-smooth snow performance or feel this was and this was matthew right who Mm. asked this i have to say matthew 10 great questions i'm so bummed at you though for this question (laughs) what do you mean by very light do you mean a thousand grams do you mean 1200 1600 1800 for shame, Matthew. Um, <laughs> though you did put very light in quotation marks, so at least but, acknowledging it. But yeah. where, where, how, where yeah, do you, I mean, what so, do you think Matthew means? I don't know. Um, yeah, some people very light is under a kilo. For me, very light is. I mean, I mean for most skis, like under sixteen hundred grams. Yeah. Um, I was gonna say under fifteen hundred. Yeah, like, and I think the the winner for me is still like the Solomon mountain explorer 95. It's to a lot of people, it's a really heavy ski because it's like 1550, I think for a 184 and it's not that wide, but like in that weight class, I, I think that's still the best thing I've ever skied in terms of like suspension. Yeah, I'd agree. And no ski that is light or similarly light or lighter has ever felt good to me on Sastrugi or Avi debris. Um, it's a nightmare, <laughs> but there, give me a Raven or something with a similar, I give me a reverse camber ski, get the tip and tail up and out of the snow. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to do. Like the more messed up the conditions get. And I'm, I'm just going to try to stay as centered as I can and stay as light as I can kind of on that ski. And, um, so that's where shape becomes really important and at a certain point, I mean, like, especially like if we're talking about like refrozen coral, 
I would actually start take off your skis and walk home. (laughs) I was going to say, I would much rather have a lighter ski with a lot of tip and tail rocker. That's not going to get hung up and caught than like a heavier ski. Say like, I don't, at that point, don't give me a head monster 108, like a super heavy ski with like a flat tail and like limited tip rocker, because I want to get that tip and tail up out of the catchy. Sounds like you're not a good enough skier. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Cream cheesy throwing bombs. I mean, I've seen Drew pivot that ski. Like, no, you haven't. Enough. Yeah, on if, frozen, if he, refrozen coral reef. I don't know. I mean, first of all, Drew doesn't pivot skis. He he forces them to by carving them so hard that <laughs> the tail has to release. <laughs> all right, that's a yeah question for a different day. Another one from Matthew. Term in terms of phrasing or terms. Yeah. AT or ski touring or backcountry skiing or schemo. What do you call it? You go first. Uh, to me, the first three, alpine touring, ski touring, backcountry skiing, are all interchangeable. Schemo is what I refer to when typically it involves pointy things like crampons and ice axes and or ropes and or a harness. And or lycra a lycra that's suit. not necessary but <laughs> um but yeah mo- for me it's more like that it involves usually technical climbing yeah and maybe some rope work and maybe some taking off your skis on the descent um that's that's i think schemo is the most different all the, the other three i think i think of interchangeably i do honestly think of schemo primarily you have to be wearing lycra lycra sort of clingy stick to your suits. That's racing though. Yeah. I, I would never wear Lycra for like going into the backcountry and like well, I know. climbing and skiing. I'm just, a, a I, this is just our opinion. Yeah, yeah. And I would still say like pointy things, just bring in pointy things or a rope. Lots of people still only call that backcountry skiing. I went ski touring today. They wouldn't be like, oh, I brought a rope. So I went ski mowing today. Yeah. I never say I went ski mowing. Yeah. Like I appreciate I, that about you. Yeah. Like yeah, I still went skiing. Yeah. Like that's the main goal. But like if I was writing a review, I'd say like on a ski mountaineering style line or something like that. But I guess some people would say I went ski mountaineering. I also who just would never say I would went say that? mountaineering. I've, I've never one time, I don't have any friends who are like, I went ski mowing or ski I, mountaineering. I, I think that's, I would guess it's more of a thing in Europe, but maybe I'm wrong. All right. Next question. Yeah. Uh, another pin binding question from Jeremy in Alaska. Um, basically, the long story short is here he has the Dinafit Hoji Pro Tour, which he likes but only works with pin bindings. And he is asking um, for days such as when there's really high avalanche danger and you want to ski in the resort, but you have to ski on a full pin binding, what would you use? Um, my answer and. I need to double check that it's still true, but currently, as far as I know, Freechi slash Black Diamond have said that the Hoji Pro Tour boot works in the Tecton. There was a time, I'm not sure if it's still true today, where DinaFit was like, no, it doesn't. But then Freechi came out and was like, yes, it does. And I'd trust the, I guess, the binding makers more because they, they'd test their stuff with a whole variety of boots. But anyways, that's the binding I would use 
that works with that boot if I had to ski in the resort. Not ideal, but like I think that's the best option. Um, what would your take be? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there's arguments that could be made that like the, well, I guess it's the same toe design. The Fricci Vipec and Tecton toe in certain scenarios can, I can see how it would be safer than a traditional tech toe because it releases more laterally but i mean in general i would say like well definitely don't get a u-spring binding um a, a independent springs on the heel are going to be a little bit more safe and generally a heavier binding i would just trust more if i had to ski it in the resort but my top pick if if Fricci still says it works would be the tecton yeah and i mean the reason i say i don't know is because i think that this is a realm where there's so many variables that come in that, uh, you know, I, I think about things a lot like the fact that a lot of people have these big rubber lugged up soles on their boots. And when we start talking about like what's safest or best, when you start like wearing away, you know, some of the rubber on these soles, or if your boot is, you know, you haven't sort of created the right amount of space with a tech binding. There's so many other variables here that come into play that I think to sit here and just be like, oh, clearly this just, we start saying more than we know really fast. You know what I mean? Yeah. Especially with full pin bindings. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't know enough to say if one is safer than the others. Like I think in our lightweight touring binding comparison where you like we like made a point to talk about safety features like into like independently yeah. adjustable release values yes. and stuff like that but like we're not saying we can't say that these are objectively safer we just don't have like the expertise or tools to test that objectively yeah. so yeah unfortunately Tricky. kind of yeah not not the most satisfying answer but no but i think in life it's like sometimes the answer or sometimes the truth isn't going to be totally satisfying and you better have people that are willing to tell you that rather than fake it, overstate something. And so here we are. So you're welcome for the unsatisfying answer. Uh, next question, which I think we'll give to you is from Darcy. Um, long story short, asking about how, how should an AT boot fit? Like, are you, what are you going for in terms of like heel pocket tightness? Like, should it fit exactly like your Alpine boots? Um, they were having trouble with, uh, avoiding blisters in their boots, which I know is, uh, an issue you've had in the past. Yeah. And specifically Darcy said, you know, that they're getting blisters on the inside of their heels. And that is a kind of common thing for me. Um, I think my heels go kind of narrow. And um, so basically, here's one simple thing that I'm doing these days that I didn't used to, and it does seem to be helping the cause a bit. When I'm going touring, and I am, I mean, I'm cycling through right now, like four or five different AT boots. What I will do now is I will buckle or close the bottom two buckles on the cuff of the boot. And so it's not like crazy insanely tight for the skin up, but it is closed. And I want a little bit of pressure on there. 
And I feel like that does help for me just eliminate a little bit of the slippage or rubbing of, you know, the kind of when you're skinning up a mountain and your heel is lifting up, um, what I want to eliminate is any excess movement that I can between my heel and the liner. And so far that has proved, and I used to just run everything, all buckles wide open on the way up. So it's a real basic, simple thing, but I might try that is just play a little bit with and see what you can tolerate. And, and I am not, I am not like in pain or wincing on the way up, uh, but I would play with that. Try closing the lowest two buckles on your touring boot, assuming you're in a four buckle boot and see if that just helps hold that heel in place and minimize a bit of rubbing between your heel and the liner. The other thing I will say is, you know, it tends to be the case, like the lighter, the touring boot, often sort of the flimsier the liner is. And it is often with like really, uh, for lack of a better word right now, flimsy or kind of malleable liners. Those are where I tend to get more blisters than, than if I'm going with a heavier liner that tends to be a bit more solid. Um, that might just be my particular feat, but just an FYI, uh, that's probably not helpful for anyone. But yeah, I would try closing, having trouble with blisters, try closing the lower two buckles on your boot. And yeah, as a generalization, I would go with less. I, I want a tighter heel pocket than a roomier heel pocket. Because if you've got a roomier heel pocket and you're stepping, like every single step, it seems like you're inviting the opportunity for more rubbing to take place. And I I frankly just don't, I've never, I've never toured in an AT boot where I'm like, wow, this heel pocket is crazy tight. Again, that's just for my heels. If I had, if I had wider heels, I might feel differently. I can't imagine how having a wider or a looser heel pocket is going to actually reduce blistering. Mm. Yeah. I, I, my ideal boot would have zero movement in the heel area room in the toe box for me to wiggle my yeah. toes, maybe a little bit more room in the toe box than my downhill or yeah. Alpine boots. Um, but that's very challenging to find. Um, I think laces in your liners can yep. sometimes help. Yep. Um, cause that sometimes the tongue shifting around can be a cause for blisters. Probably not the, the inside the heel ones, but sometimes that'll help. Um, sometimes boot fitters will, will like add a lift to the heel to kind of snug it up with the, using the top of your instep. Um, to, so that can't move as much, but I usually try and keep my lower foot basically as stationary inside the boot as possible and just moving my ankle and my upper leg ideally, but that rarely is the case. All right, so next question from Caroline is essentially how to go about assembling a touring setup without breaking the bank. I'm really eager to get into the backcountry more, but so much of the essential gear and safety skills are tough to afford. Uh, this, th I think this speaks to a more general theme of accessibility and skiing as a whole, but I'd love to hear from people who've done it and how the tips and tricks work best. Um, so it's definitely a tough one because th there's a certain 
amount of gear that you just you're just gonna need and that is definitely one of the barriers to entry for uh touring and the first thing would be an avalanche one course um which is typically at least a few hundred dollars i know some areas do like scholarships for people and i think i want to say I think American Alpine Club did this for like uh, climbing courses. I'm not sure if they do AVI courses, but I would search around and see if there are scholarship opportunities um, because I've I've heard of some people getting those for the Avalanche 1 course, which is the first step. Second step, I mean, just keeping an eye on the used market. That's what I did in college um, and found an old demo setup. It'd be worth hitting up um, if there are any like local dealers around they'll often sell their demo setups at the end or some of them at the end of the season, which you can get usually everything all in one place for hundreds of dollars less than, um, it would be separate. And it's usually in better shape than if you were just going on Craigslist. Um, those would be my two recommendations borrow gear. <laughs> like I, I didn't buy, like I th- I didn't own, I think like 50% of my touring gear until like my senior year of college, because I just happened to know people that either weren't going that often or that I was in touch with frequently. So I could just grab like a backpack or a shovel or something like that. Um, but that, that's all the advice I think I can offer. I think my pro tip is on our website, you can find digital editions of previous buyer's guides. And so I would go look at those where, you know, we're weighing in on stuff and telling you from three years ago, four years ago, what skis we really liked in the backcountry category and what touring boots we liked and what bindings we liked. So start there. And then if there has been an updated version of that ski or binding or boot, then I would start to sort of dig around and look. But I think going through some of our past guides where you can identify stuff that we was thought was really good then, you know, rather than just going to the used market kind of blindly and having no idea if it's like, oh, that turns out that binding is terrible or that ski sucks or whatever. So I would, I would do that. Um, I absolutely think the first part is if you're actually going to be getting into any kind of avalanche terrain, you can't skip, you can't skip the course stuff. So that's got to just be a full stop deal breaker for you. I would say though, I mean, if you are in a spot where you're at a ski area where they do have an uphill policy, you know, um, I, I would not tell people that are, you know, if they're at a ski area where there is an uphill policy and you're not breaking rules, I think that you could start there and start getting a used to your equipment and getting used to putting skins on and taking them off. Or if you happen to live in an area where there's a super mellow, you know, 20 degree or even less steep meadow or something, you know, go do that for a while, get comfortable in your gear, um, as you're saving up money for the extra stuff you're going to need. So those are just, I don't know, somewhat obvious, uh, things I think to say, but, um, yeah, I mean, there's no question, you know, it does take some resources to get into the backcountry, but hopefully we've given you a couple of decent ideas there. 
Cool. Uh, last question from Andrew. Uh, what's your favorite ski touring backpack? Um, for for him, he's looking for easy single day objectives, so you don't need a ton of gear. Um, but bells and whistles are nice too. Uh, do you want to go first? You go first. Well, mine is kind of dictated by the fact that I carry camera gear with me, um, and because of that, it I've been using the Gregory Tarhi. I think it's thirty. Five or 32 i don't know my, my reviews on the website yeah um but i like it a lot because it's a full back panel access i can throw a camera cube in there with the body and two lenses and then it fits all the rest of my gear for single day average type of stuff um has attachments for ice axes and a helmet carrier and a pocket on the hip belt which is nice and yeah basically has all the features i can want and it has held up well after two very full seasons of use. Um, so I've been pretty happy with that. My other two that I've been liking the mystery ranch saddle peak 25 is like, if I wasn't carrying a camera, that would be my go-to pack for like half day tours and side country stuff in the resort. Cause I think it's the most stable skiing pack I've ever used. It's way more low profile than the Gregory. It also carries ski carries loads super well. Cause it has an amazing, uh, like frame or suspension system in it. Um, so that's another one of my favorites. And then this year I've been using the new Thule upslope a little bit and I similar vein as the mystery ranch. It's, it's really nice while skiing. It's less of an ideal setup for carrying camera gear. So I haven't been using it quite as much, um, especially not in the resort, but I think I'll be touring with that one a little bit more this summer and should be doing a, a review in the fall most likely. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the truth is I'm still most days like as in well over 90% of my days out, I'm still touring in the original Gregory Targi pack. You can read our review on it on our site. I might have a photo of me in it on like my uh, bio page or something skiing in New Zealand with it, but I am literally still using that outdated, no longer in existence because Luke is ski ski touring in the their updated version of the pack so i'm still grabbing that and so there's a lot of days where luke is skiing in the updated version of the targi pack and i am skiing in the old version of that pack they're both very bright orange (laughs) and they're both both very bright orange um but that's a bit of a testament slash compliment to that pack i'd say because we have a lot of packs around here and um I still really like it a lot and I actually have a couple other packs that I really need to like break my old habit and start using those but there is something nice when touring to have just complete complete comfort and familiarity with mm-hmm. your pack and maybe that's why it's like I've got to constantly be in different boots and on different bindings and on different skis and sometimes I'm like can I have like any part of my kit other than my beacon, like not changing all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Cause every time you change packs, you have to like change how you pack everything. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, that's that, but I, I should, uh, I guess stop skiing a pack that no longer exists. Not great for, from a review point of view, I suppose. Yeah. 
if it works. If it works. All right. Dylan is still waiting outside of HQ. We've got to let the poor kid in in a minute. So I think our work is done here. I think it's time for our what we're celebrating this week segment. Lucas, what are you celebrating? I always struggle to come up with something interesting, so I won't really try. Like, I am very excited about bike season. I ordered a new per- personal bike yeah. back in, like, I want to say, like, right after the lifts close. And of course, like the mountain bike industry is a nightmare right now in terms of like delays and just no one can get anything. But I found a bike that was going to get here in May, which sounded like, or which was going to be three or four, 12 months earlier than some other bikes. It did get delayed two weeks. I got a notification about that last week. So now it's end of May, which probably means like mid June, but that should be fine because they just announced the bike park at Mount Crested Butte is going to open June 12th. Hmm. I think by before then, a decent amount of trails should be melting out. Like I keep looking at Upper Loop yeah, because it's right by my house and everything looks melted out, but I know as soon as you get into the trees, it's just going to be all snow left over. But I think maybe we'll, we'll go out and start digging soon. But yeah, I've just been spending too much time like thinking about bike gear and um all that stuff and yeah got out with dylan last week at hartman's it's super nice to have that so yeah yeah just eagerly awaiting you know when luke said when i told him we were going to be doing this what we're celebrating so he should be thinking of something he's like man i don't know my life is boring i was like dude you literally just went on a ski tour in the middle of the workday and then you get to hang out with me. And he didn't seem that impressed <laughs> by by that. But, you know. Um, I, I, yeah, don't get me wrong. I feel extremely fortunate. I just don't To get think, to hang out with me? Yeah, exclusively that. <laughs> I hate ski touring. <laughs> no, but like, yeah, I get to do very cool things. It's just I don't do a whole lot of things outside of work. Yeah. Bike, ski, and fish. <laughs> But Boy, there that, are that, there are worse problems. Yeah, have. <laughs> you there that just earned a zero sympathy kind of response. I think for me, I already alluded to it. Uh, what I'm celebrating is I am actually heading to Portland, Oregon tomorrow to see some very good friends of mine, Nate and Jamie. Shout out to Nate and Jamie. Rumor has it that the only reason I'm going out there is because they might have a new puppy. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of jonesing for a new dog, Luke. And I don't, yeah, this is a, it's a big conversation. And I, you know, I wish I'd had one all during COVID where we weren't really going anywhere. And now that things are opening up, um, I, I definitely don't want to have like a puppy and I'm now traveling quite a bit more. So I need to solve that, but I'm extremely excited, uh, to see some great friends of mine. Um, and again, people like I got my second vaccination shot on April 1st. I am good to go. It's been a couple weeks since then. I'm excited to uh, to travel. And uh, really, truly, I'm extremely grateful for that, which is why I'm going to now raise this uh, this little tumbler of Whistlepig 12 that I have in my hand and uh, raise a glass to reuniting with good friends. So that's what I got. That brings us to the end of this episode of Gear 30, and we should definitely let 
Dylan Wood into Blister Headquarters now. So I want to say thanks to Luke for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks, of course, to you for both listening and for submitting some really good questions. So thanks for that. Uh, Let's see, this Monday... We've got a new Reviewing the News episode with Cody Townsend. That will be dropping Monday on our Blister podcast. Um, I'm actually going to be recording that with him while I'm in Portland. And who knows where on earth Cody will be when we record, but uh, we'll find out. So anyway, thanks everybody. And we will talk to you real soon.